Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The race is on, and Pierre Gasly topped the first day of the final pre-season test in Bahrain for AlphaTauri, but it was Mercedes that captured the headlines by revealing its aggressively tightly packaged new side pods. But how well did those Mercedes changes work, and have we learned anything new about the relative performance of the cars? I'm Ed Straw, and joining me to answer that question and many more is Scott Mitchell. Well, Scott, hello. Simple summary of the day. Pierre Gasly will be world champion. Yeah, exactly. Very, very good year in store for Alpha Tauri. He's obviously learned a lot since um, since his, his, his Red Bull demotion. Um, he came of age as a Grand Prix winner in 2020. He had his career best season in 2021, and now he is ready to go out all guns blazing in the 2022 season and sweep his way to the title. And to put a little bit of uh, sense checking on that, he set his time on the C5s. I think that tyre compound adjusted the Ferraris were were quicker, but still a decent day for AlphaTauri. They seemed to spend quite a lot of time fettling the setup, but when they eventually got it right, it seemed to work okay. But they did have some difficulties with porpoising, didn't they? Yeah, they did. Um, I think the the runs we saw. I, I watched. Uh, I watched Gasly sort of make his way up into in, into top spot. I saw uh, a couple of his laps on board, and then sort of obviously some of the external cameras. And, and car looked neat and tidy. Um, maybe a little bit like maybe looked like it was not quite as sharp as it needed to be. Um, on corner entry, and especially in the final sector, that might work, but that might well be the softest compound tyres, obviously dying a death by the end of the lap. And the cars are quite understeery as well. Yeah, exactly. Um, but you're right; the porpoising was absolutely an issue. There's an amazing uh, driver-facing onboard camera shot of Pierre's head going for a properly wild ride. Like, like it looks like it could be shaken off his shoulders. It's really aggressive. But you know how the um, the shot of the Ferrari coming down, the, the head-on shot of the Ferrari coming down the start-finish straight at Barcelona sort of became like the defining porpoising image of the first test. Obviously, there wasn't TV coverage there. And that was just this amazing, brilliant, such a graphic illustration of what exactly we were talking about. That ghastly onboard, I'd be surprised if that doesn't like do the rounds and get shared widely on social media and, and become like the, the defining image of of the impact of porpoising on on drivers because it's so so strong and from the outside i remember it coming down to turn one and just thinking it doesn't look too bad like it actually looks under control and then you actually see what it's like on board and it's it's not under it's so much more aggressive and extreme than it looks and obviously for some cars from the outside it looks bad as well so there must be a couple of cars on the grid that uh, for the drivers who have an even bigger headache at the end of the day yeah certainly some headbanging stuff going on we will come back to porpoising in a minute but let's hit the big talking point which is the mercedes side pods they broke cover before the start of running they all had to take the cars onto the start finish straight for some promo photos now there was some question about whether the design was legal although f1's managing director of motorsport ross braun 
seem to put that idea to bed. But there's a bit more of a question about whether they're in the spirit of the regulations, particularly the mirrors that look like spaceships. That was the Mattia Bonotto, the Ferrari team principal uh, description. That's all about the mirror mounting, which is a vein that's really the shroud for the upper side impact cone. So, and that also has its own series of veins on it. So should Mercedes be concerned that this could be what we've been talking about, this change where if they get a super majority of eight out of 10 teams, it could get moved off? Well, it it absolutely could because it's been made clear by F1 and the FIA, and obviously the FIA are the actual regulator and rulemaker, that they are willing to use the new governance system to change things they don't like. And primarily that's about designs or ideas that circumvent the the purpose of the regulations or circumvent the parts of the regulations that are designed to make the cars easier to follow and make them more raceable. We've used that word a lot over the last few months. I'm not 100% convinced it's actually a word. Ross Braun coined it in that press conference at Austin in 2019 when they launched the rules. The raceability was the thing <laughs> Yeah, raceability, that's the one. Raceable feels like more of a word. Raceability feels like a bit of a stretch. Feels like a slogan, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. Um, so we're in this situation where they're also willing to act if they just basically see loopholes. Let's take a very, very vivid example. Let's go... The man himself, Braun, the double diffuser in 2009. If this governance system existed then, that would have been banned, wouldn't it? It would have been changed immediately because you would have had all the teams except for presumably Braun, Toyota and Williams both in to get it done. F1 and the FIA would have been like, oh, this is a loophole we didn't expect. And the reason that's an issue, I think, is because even though F1 and the FIA are saying things like, you know, it's not that they want to like stamp out innovation, they have also made it clear that they prescribe the rules more tightly because they want a a closer field spread so it's almost like they want it to be about the execution of a a sort of simple set of rules and I'm starting to get the impression that maybe F1's moving a little bit away from innovation and doesn't really want to encourage too much of it in in a certain way so that's where I think the fear that there could be change for Mercedes coming I'd I don't think I don't know the rules inside out. Braun doesn't know the rules inside out. It's not for Braun to say whether this car or this design is legal, but I'd be surprised if Mercedes have done something that's like so properly on the regulatory knife edge that it could be deemed just explicitly in breach of the technical regs. I, I don't, my gut feeling, I don't really think that would happen. And they have to hand over CAD. They have to talk to FIA about what they're doing. So it's not like this, this would have appeared. come up. Yeah, this would yeah. have come up. This would have come as a shock to the FIA. Exactly. But it would count as something that they've seen and gone, oh, that's surprising, but doesn't necessarily undermine the overtaking objectives of the new rules. But my worry is, and I say this as a worry, like I don't I don't care if Mercedes in a competitive way, I don't care if Mercedes get pegged back. What I think I might care about is whether or not there's a risk here that the powers that be turn around and say, that's really clever. We don't like that because we think that might give you a big advantage and you're going to be up the road. So therefore, we've got everyone we need to support it. So we're going to ban it. That's that's the thing I, I wouldn't like. If they turn around and say, yes, it's legal, but we don't like it. So rather than be something that they say, yeah, you can do this this year, we'll ban it next year. I do worry we, we might get in a position where simple innovation is getting stamped out mid-season. And... and I don't know, it's dangerous ground for us to go then on this podcast. We could probably be here for hours, Ed, but I don't I don't really think that's 
where F1's meant to be. And if you bring in a sweeping set of new technical regs, what? why would you then punish a team that has done something to the letter of laws okay? Yeah, that's the concern. Toto Wolf said he preferred the old system, whereby maybe if there's something you don't like, it gets banned the year after. Now, there is the technologies rule that allows that to happen, but aero services are a little bit different. But as far as we can tell, it does seem to be to the regulations, although, as Gary Anderson has explained, it is quite tricky to get a complete handle on the regs, given the way they're all done with CAD coordinates and so on and so forth. And speaking of Gary Anderson, as ever, we've got him on hand to explain some of the aero secrets of what's going on. So here's what he had to say about the Mercedes side pods. I think Mercedes changes to their car for uh, for the Bahrain test since Barcelona have taken everybody a bit by surprise. Um, it's not, you know, n- not new for Mercedes to do this, to get the car up and running for testing. Um, make sure the mechanical parts of it all function correctly, all the systems are working correctly, and then uh, redo their dynamic surfaces for the final test or even the first race. So it's not a new concept for them, um, but it is visually fairly dramatic. Um, they've definitely gone for the uh, the minute side pod, you might call it, the, the cling-wrapped solution to everything. Now, I think the mechanical components underneath it were probably, most of them were probably the same in the Barcelona test, but obviously we didn't see that. The way the bodywork clothed it um, eliminated us from sort of really picking up the, the overall concept. Um, I think they would be keen to have run that mechanical setup as far as the radiators and that's concerned to make sure that they were um, covered as far as cooling was concerned and confirm everything. But um, I don't think this bodywork package is the moment of a of a couple of weeks since the Barcelona test. It's obviously started a long time ago. And that's what happens. Every day in the wind tunnel, every day, every run you do, you learn something new and that's something you can lead you to a, a tenth of a second here, a tenth of a second there. So I don't think... Um, We've seen the true Mercedes yet, as far as performance is concerned. Um, the bodywork package looks looks very good to me. It's, it's obviously a cling wrap solution, and um, as I say, if, if Ferrari are one way with their what I call bulbous side pods, then for sure Mercedes is the other way. Um, and unfortunately, somebody has to get it right and somebody has to get it wrong. So we'll have to wait and see how testing unfolds. Um, but um, I think Mercedes have got a package here that will be very difficult for anybody to to copy, uh, to follow, because it is a, a complete package. It's not just, you know, one individual component. And it's interesting to see that, you know, the red cars, the silver cars, the blue cars, and even the orange cars, um, and you can even add to that the green cars, having such a different solution to all these different uh, regulations. So, again, we'll have to just wait and see how it unfolds, who, who's got it right and who's got it wrong. Um, I think the difference is going to be quite small. It's not really a, a major thing. It's going to be the underfloor, getting more out of the underfloor that will be the big thing and how you get that more out of the underfloor without increasing this porpoising. Well, that mention of porpoising was interesting. We will get to that in one moment, but have to talk about who's concerned about the Mercedes design. We mentioned Mattia Bonotto. What did Christian Horner say or or not say because there's something interesting going on there yeah there absolutely was so the bonotto side of things was the much more conventional way of politely raising a slight concern he never bonotto never explicitly said oh we think what you're doing with the mirrors is absolutely illegal it doesn't necessarily breach a technical reg but bonotto was along that sort of spirit of the rules vibe and saying oh maybe we should look into this and see if we want this banned because i don't think that's what a route we want to go down you know very Middle of the road, but with a very strong implication. Did it in a press conference, official setting, quotes go everywhere. The Ferrari view is very clearly on record. That That's how you would do it, right, Ed, if you wanted to, to raise this sort of thing? 
yeah, that's the standard way to, to work. I don't think you do it the way Red Bull sort of accidentally did it and then tried to backtrack from. So Red Bull found itself in a bit of a self-inflicted muddle because shortly after the Mercedes upgrades broke cover, um, Michael Schmidt, super respected automotive and sport journalist, been around for, 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 for ages. There's, there's no doubt in the veracity of something that he writes, especially when he quotes someone. So I like, I'm putting that out there now, uh, just so that is absolutely clear with what I say next. He quoted Christian Horner as suggesting the Mercedes design was illegal and against the spirit of the rules. So Red Bull then moved to claim that Horner hadn't spoken with any media or made any comments about the Mercedes. Uh, and then they released, even released a formal statement in which the team said Christian Horner has not given any interviews regarding Mercedes car. Any quotes being attributed to him this morning are incorrect. Huge claim to make against any journalist, let alone someone as respected as as Michael Schmidt. And what was weird was that was then subsequently softened, and it it wasn't softened via a formal statement, but the sort of message from the team was basically that they hadn't made an official comment regarding Mercedes' car and wouldn't be doing so. And it's easy to draw a distinction between something Horner could have said in passing in a conversation and what the team would regard an official comment. Um, I I mean, personally, slight tangent, I think it's really unfortunate that a journalist of you know Michael's integrity and credibility has been caught in this bizarre, crossfire, defensive reaction kind of thing and the one thing we should say them is people might say well play the recording of it but michael schmidt's very old school it's all notebook for michael schmidt which in the court of law certainly in the uk is all right that's, yeah that's I've, admissible. I've submitted uh, i've submitted shorthand uh, shorthand notes before as um, as evidence for something that um could potentially have ended up in a in a in a legal situation you might remember that ed but we bet we, we won't go on to it here but anyway my i think the point with the mercedes the red bull thing is that official or not it was really the message was clear, wasn't it? The Merck design has caught the eye and drawn Red Bull's ire, and I think this is just the start. I think this is the beginning of a lot of finger pointing because this is the first time we get to see the re- designs for real. You know, we've had the sort of launch spec, first test spec, base spec cars. Now we're getting the stuff that's actually going to be on the cars for the first race. It's Red Bull's turn. Probably not on day two, but I think day three we're going to see some funky new bits on the on the Red Bull. And uh, let's just say, if Mercedes feel that Red Bulls have drawn uh, needless attention to some of the Mercedes parts, I think we can be pretty sure that there will be some finger pointing going on at the RB18 by the end of this test. You do also have to say that we talked about that supermajority, 8 out of 10. I'm not sure that they'll get a supermajority on certain aspects of the, of the, of the side pods and, and the mirror, because McLaren and Williams are in a similar position. Obviously, they've got the same packaging opportunity that... Mercedes have had they're not quite as extreme as Mercedes but you look at it and you think well I can see them getting quite easily six people not keen on it but it'll turn into politics and although much as Mercedes will claim they don't have aligned teams or McLaren Zach Brown's railed against aligned teams but if your objectives are aligned then you're going to vote for what works for you well they've always said that the teams that are always accused of voting in line with their engine supplier or anything like this they 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 insist they don't they don't vote in blocks because they're forced to they do it because if there's an engine related matter then it's obviously in their interest to vote in line with the engine manufacturer and if your packaging and your core aerodynamic philosophy is being shaped by your power unit design and the you know the physical 
um, measurements and architecture of the power unit, then and, and therefore you've gone for a side pod solution that's very similar to the thing that's being proposed should be banned, you're not going to vote in favour of that. You're absolutely right. So it could be quite difficult for them. That would be the one saving grace for those who think that this is a you know, a needless clamp down on innovation. Maybe the fact that there are more than a couple of teams sort of bound together by this would, would stop it from action being taken. Unless, of course, they find a way to just outright rule it a technical rules breach. Yeah, and the FIA have made a big virtue, and F1, in fact, of the fact they can make these changes for things that aren't in the spirit of the regulations or the intention of the regs is the phrase they tend to use. But that's yet to be tested. What sporting regulation or technical regulation do, you know, covers the management of the spirit of the regulations, Ed? Well, there is no such thing as the spirit of the regulations regulation, as Adrian Newey is prone to saying. He's been caught out in the past thinking there's a spirit of the regulation regulation. So, of course, it's all nonsense, the polemics and the things they say about these things, because it all depend on what their beliefs and what they want to be able to do is. So I think there's going to be a lot over the coming weeks and probably once we get to the, the first race, of course, which is also here in Bahrain, we may see some interesting protest as well if people think there is a legality question well we promised you more talk about porpoising so we're going to come back to that now let's have a listen to what gary anderson had to say about the situation everybody seems to be suffering a little bit from it in bahrain but you would expect that it's a bumpier track and that's the bumps that set it off and then after that you've got to try and control it and that's not easy i don't think there's been many developments between Barcelona and Bahrain that have helped the porpoising. From what I see, it's actually quite a bit worse. Um, and it's one of those things that's really, you know, as far as the driver's concerned, it's very disconcerting. But if it's going down the straight, you get to live with it. The thing is, if it's bouncing right at the end of the straight, it gives you a lack of confidence in the braking area. It also changes your vision because, you know, your eyeballs have to keep up with all that sort of stuff. Um, and that's not easy to do. So, again, side pod concepts, porpoise, and they probably go hand in hand. And that will be the avenue which people will be working very hard to uh, to actually try to overcome. And again, on the on the Mercedes, looking TV coverage um, first day, and um, it looked like I could see porpoising actually in the middle of a fast corner, like this the outside side of the car would go down near the ground, touch the ground, sparks would fly, and then you could see the sort of what I call a roll porpoising. The car was, would unroll itself a little bit and then it would roll again, unroll itself a little bit. If that's really happening, uh, and you can see it on TV, then in the car it's going to be pretty disturbing through fast corners with uh, with any bumps in them. So uh, let's get through at the end of the test and see who, who gets on top of it quickest. But at the moment I think there's um, there's room for improvement in most of the cars that I've seen on TV today. Interesting stuff there from Gary as ever, Scott. There is quite a big spread in terms of that porpoising, though, isn't it? As we said, AlphaTauri seemed to get on top of it, but it took them a while. Ferrari got the car working. It seemed to be okay. McLaren looks in really good shape. They had some braking problems today. Plus, of course, their driver roster got shuffled around because Daniel Ricciardo was ill, so Lando Norris had to jump in. But they seem to be in, in reasonable shape. And we've talked before about these powerful vortices they've got running down the side of the floor to seal the underfloor. So quite a big spread, isn't it? It's a problem for everyone to some extent, but we're seeing big differences. Yeah, I was talking to Valtteri Bottas at the end of the day and Alfa Romeo are obviously one of the teams that were really badly affected by this in, in the start. I think we probably said on the, the, the one of the podcasts or several of the podcasts maybe during the Barcelona test that um, it was so bad for them that there were stories of putting a hole in the car in, in the shakedown and then 
it caused them all sorts of grief in in Barcelona. Um, Bottas thinks that basically every team, to one degree or another, will be running a compromised setup because teams are basically learning that. I think all the teams, once they run the car low enough, are hit with it to to one degree or another. So it's all about trying to manage and find the best compromise, like it is on 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 any situation. I think what was encouraging for Bottas and Alfa Romeo is that this was something that, yeah, really had plagued them at first, but it actually seems to be under control. They were really confident that once they got away from Barcelona and were able to get back to the factory, they would be able to fix their porpoising problem and they would have it running okay here. And Bottas said there were a few nervous faces in the garage this morning because obviously your simulations or your expectations can tell you one thing, but it's only when you run the car properly on track for the first time that you know for certain. There's a little bit of apprehension about, you know, would what they expected to work really work? Good news for Alfa Romeo is it did. I think I might be wrong here. My numbers might be completely off. I feel like Bottas managed more laps today than he did across the entirety of the Barcelona test. Yeah, I think he did. 120 laps Alfa Romeo racked up across the two drivers. But Bottas had a horrible test in uh, in Barcelona. It was fifty something laps he managed. Yeah, in the end, I feel like it? he only managed like fifty five or fifty six laps in Spain, and I feel like he got. I think he went past that. I mean, I don't have the numbers in 54 front. Fifty four laps. Ah, uh, today. No, in, 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 in Spain. Spain. Oh, okay, cool. And, and how I'm going to say sixty six, but oh, that's from memory. That. So let's see. Well, a half day for Bottas. Yeah, and that, yeah, yeah, it's only so, half, so, half a day of running so, for him. So, so. He, in half a day, he has done more than he did in a day and a half in Barcelona. So yeah, 66 no laps. wonder that Bottas described this as the first proper day of testing for him. And it's just a really good way for Alfa Romeo to get off on the on the front foot because they had been on the back foot coming into this test. They really had some catching up to do. Um, and I think it's good. It's, it's, it's good to see. We don't want to go into a new regulation set and see a team like you know crisis at the back of the grid with all sorts of problems. So... Just encouraging and, and and good that the solutions that they thought they would they would have they're still being a bit coy on exactly sort of what they've been able to do. They did have a little bit of a of a setback uh, uh, earlier, a little with um, Joe Guanyu, but he uh, Bottas said that they feared that that would be um, a more serious hydraulics issue, and it turned out not to be. So Joe was only off uh, off track for a little while, I think, and he was happy with his first first day, uh, first morning. He said it felt a step up from from Barcelona. Bottas concurred. So the team that I do genuinely think was worse affected by the porpoising has now got to a point where it has um, mitigated it enough to now be uh, perfectly competent and no worse off than any other team. Yeah, and Bottas was seventh fastest of the 15 drivers today. That made Alpha the sixth fastest team. That was using C3s. He did a 1 minute 35.495. Gasly's Pace setting lap was a 33.902, of course, on the C5s. Now, another driver you've been speaking to is the one we were enthusing about on our last podcast, Kevin Magnussen. Now, he didn't drive today, but he's back in the F1 milieu. How happy is he to be back? Honestly, I think really, really happy. Still a bit surprised, I think, that he's actually back. Um, it was a, we had a really good chat with him. We, we were with him for 20 minutes. Um, he talked about a lot... Um, from how surprised he was to get the first phone call, joked that he was a bit like, mm-hmm. I wonder what Gunter could want, because apparently he had only just seen that uh, that, that Mazepin had been dropped, so it was a week ago. So that, that tells us a lot about the timeline. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then apparently he said yes straight away. Gunter said, would you, would you like to come back? And Kevin said yes, and then he was sort of thinking... Oh, maybe I probably shouldn't have uh, said yes right away because he needed to. But not only did he, he needed to clear it, 
He needed to get out of his Chip Ganassi racing commitment. He needed to get out of his Peugeot hypercar program. Obviously, he's meant, he was meant to be going back to, or he was meant to be helping Peugeot, Peugeot go back to the Le Mans 24 Hours. Who was the third boss that he needed to clear it with? It? That's a good question. His dad? Mrs. Magnussen. Oh, Mrs. Magnussen. Well, Mrs. Magnussen, because uh, since leaving Formula One, Kevin's become a father. So, uh, young family going on. Um, I think he might. I think he moved back to Denmark as well. As obviously he's been out in the states for racing, but I think he moved back home as well. So there's a lot to go there. But he was like he said that um, he said that uh, his wife was um, initially a bit bit up bit up and down about whether he should do it. But he said he was pushing quite hard for her to approve. But obviously by this point he'd already said yes to Gunther. So he was basically he'd said yes and then had to go to all these people and convince them. But to be fair, you have to you have to give credit to Chip Ganassi and to the bosses at Peugeot. Kevin said that he had no F1 clause in his any of his contracts. No one was obliged to let him go, but they all didn't want to stand in his way. And apparently, he had a really really clean break with them. Like it was absolutely fine. And um, Steiner said that they basically pulled his old contract out, and they go two years. Same as you you know how it works. No lawyers involved. Anything like that. Like really amicable. Is a he said it feels like a bit of a homecoming for him, and I, I do get that vibe. He 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 also pointed out that he he it's kind of, it's a little bit awkward in a way, but it's just really about finding the best way to put it. And Kevin's way of putting it was just he didn't really feel like the team wanted to let go of him the first time, but he understood why they had to. So he didn't leave like with any burnt bridges or anything like that. And so the team's super happy to have him back. He's super happy to be back. And it was interesting because he said he hadn't realised how much he'd missed it. He he was saying things even as recently as January, I think, that you know, he wouldn't go back to F1 to be in a midfield team and any of this. And he'd fallen into that trap of someone forced out of F1 then goes off a little bit on how uncompetitive F1 is and how he'd rather be in a championship. He has a chance of winning and all of this. But now he's like, actually, I'm sort of... It, it, his mentality is basically like saying all that because he didn't think he had a chance of coming back. And now the chance to come back's arrived and he's like, I really want it. I think he's surprised by how much he wanted it. And he basically was just like, as soon as the offer was in front of him, he was just like, he couldn't say no. And I just, I loved that. I loved the authenticity about what he was saying and how he was saying it. I didn't come away from that thinking, oh, Kevin's just trying to say all the right things to make it you know, less awkward that he's come back to a championship that he was panning and a team that he'd walked away from or rather had, had turned him away and then um, he, he'd been annoyed at or anything like that. I, I just think it's a the, the, the honest reflection of a driver who didn't want to leave F1, didn't want to leave that team, had to, found a really good op- op- opportunity elsewhere, had fun, had success in that little time away but ultimately, he's a 29-year-old who's been dreaming of racing in F1 since he was a kid. It didn't work out exactly as it wanted it to, and he's got the chance to go back. He's just not going to say no, is he? Yeah, why wouldn't you? On the subject of Haas, they managed 47 laps today after the late start due to the freight delays with Pietro Fittipaldi driving. But there is talk of it being allowed some extra running. So what's the state of play there? They requested uh, an extra couple of hours on Sunday morning because uh, they had the problem yeah, with the... Cargo plane completely out of their control, which meant the freight arrived basically, I think, about 36 hours late. Um, only arrived just before midnight, I think, on Tuesday into Wednesday, um, which just meant that they had to miss the, the first morning. 
And yeah, it was a simple argument. Force majeure, let us run a little bit longer on Sunday. But that got rejected, I believe, by three teams, uh, two or three teams. With the compromise being you can run for a couple of extra hours at the end of one of the existing tests. Now, I don't know for sure because this situation is just a little bit, it's still a little bit unclear. I don't think it's been 100% resolved as we sit here and record this. I think there are two reasons for that. I think one, which is what Steiner said, which is regulatory, which is that technically the rules demand three consecutive days of testing. So adding a fourth one on top of that is regular in terms of in regulatory terms is tricky. But I have a suspicion that the other reason, the more serious one, is that because they got out on track today in the afternoon, they'd have done a solid afternoon's running on day one, a full day on day two, a full day on day three, had chance to then consider that data and then run again for a couple of hours on the Sunday morning, which is, you know, another X amount of hours closer to the, the race weekend starting. It's just a chance to then reflect on effectively three days worth of work and then do a little bit more. So I reckon there are a couple of teams that felt that Haas was potentially getting a needless advantage out of it rather than just regaining ground. And you might sit, you might hear this and think, well, I don't understand what Haas's problem is. Why not just tack it all on now? You know, you're still getting your run in. You're still making up the lost ground. But Steiner made the good point of the team basically worked through the night to get the car ready to be able to run this afternoon. Asking that team to then run the cars for an extra you know, four hours in one go tonight or even two hours tonight and tomorrow is something that he's hesitant to do because they've been through the ringer over the last couple of days. Um, I have no reason to doubt that that's his le- legitimate position. And if it, if he does sincerely believe that, I, re- I respect that. I don't think that's a necessarily a problematic position to take. So I think we'll see how it gets resolved. My expectation would be that Haas isn't going to, on principle, just reject the extra running. So I would imagine that I will, we will see them do one or two extra hours after everybody else stops. Everyone will stop at 7pm, like they had done today, um, and then Haas will run for an hour or two beyond that. That's my expectation, but let's see how it plays out. Yeah, it also sets a tricky precedent. Now, for freight and a delay that wasn't really of the team's making, you kind of think, yeah, that's all right. But as Toto Wolff alluded to, I presume Mercedes were one of the teams that objected because he didn't sound very behind it in the press conference. He said, where does your definition of force majeure start to evolve to? We could end up with this precedent being used to argue for all sorts of things in the future. So I think it was the teams that I heard, uh, Steiner, Steiner said to us, it was, one was McLaren, but then Alpine and Alfa Romeo have been linked as well. Okay, okay. Well, so, but, but, but a lot of people thought the same as you, because Toto had been a bit... He was definitely equivocal at best. Yeah, absolutely, but apparently he was not. But again, you never know, teams like to vote in blocks, don't they? Because although McLaren like to say, oh, you know, we're completely our own independent team, who knows, maybe Mercedes got McLaren to vote for them. I don't actually believe that, but I'm just throwing that out there because that's just, I'm, I'm sure, what a lot of people assume happened. Well, there's always politics, aren't there? Uh, The last thing, we talked a little bit about off-track political clashes, but there was a bit of an incident on track between Lance Stroll and Alpine driver Fernando Alonso. Aston Martin actually had a decent day, third quickest team with with Stroll. So what happened there? Uh, I I don't really know. I've heard Stroll's side of it. I haven't heard Alonso speak. Um, But basically, they just ended up having like a needless wheel-to-wheel fight, especially through turn four. And then on the exit of turn four, Stroll moved over, squeezed Alonso, and then Alonso backed out and, and they cracked on. And it all started because Stroll had come across Alonso while Stroll was on a race run and Alonso's 
pace was a bit erratic. So Stroll had gone past and then Alonso tried to repass him and it all just got a bit messy. And it was just one of those things where you're like, just just do better, like both of you. You don't need to be doing this. This is this looks a little bit petty and I don't I just don't really understand what, what's going on there. So Stroll wasn't unimpressed. He said that Alonso was just trying to screw him over. I don't really understand why Alonso would be minded to do that. I think they both just got in each other's way. Neither handled it particularly well. And we had a flicker of a talking point towards the end of the day, but I don't think it was anything, you know, it wasn't even a bit of handbags. It was just one of those needless little flashpoints. Yeah, and Alpine, Alonso and Ocon split the running today. Not a huge number of laps for them, 66 laps in total. So Alpine needed a decent day and it doesn't look like they've necessarily had one, certainly not especially quick. So we'll keep a close eye on them for the rest of the test. Well, thanks very much, Scott, for your insight. Head to therace.com for exhaustive coverage of testing, including the Race Live Hub, which brings you all of the lap times, images and analysis from Bahrain. If podcasts are your thing, make sure you check out our sister titles, including our IndyCar and MotoGP podcasts, and also head to YouTube. Search for the race. Loads to watch there. It has been a cagey start to the Bahrain test, but we'll be back tomorrow with everything you need to know about day two.